0: <laughs> oh glory to god man that song is just like oozing with uh with life for me and i think maybe i mean the song is just great anyway but i think for me it's because i, I love the uh, the sermon on the mount so much right and it just mm-hmm. those the sermon on the mount means so much to me it isn't just words there's like a depth and a richness involved in the sermon on the Mount, and it just it just really touches me. And I don't just mean like a, a few verses. I mean like the, the totality of the three chapters, mm-hmm. right? And I love how the, the name of the song, Be Unto Me According to Your Word. Yeah. W- w- what is His Word, mm-hmm. right? W- what is it to be unto you? Okay. What, yeah, live. Yeah, that, that's His Word. But it, His Word is just like His will, right? And, and what is His will? I mean, she starts tearing into it on earth. As it is in heaven, His will is for it to be in you as it is in heaven. That's his will. He sent forth his word so that it would be in you as it is in heaven. Now, what is it that's in heaven? Right? What is it that's in heaven? Because when we're talking about what's in heaven, it's a very specific thing that we're talking about that's in heaven. And we're not talking about like the streets of gold. Right? We're not talking about uh, all the different uh, rubies and all the different riches in the mansions we can have. When we talk about in you as it is in heaven, we no longer left wondering. Like Jesus prayed with the father and he told the disciples, no longer will you not know what my father is busy with. No longer will you not know what his will is for you because I'm about to be glorified with immortality. I'm about to come out of the grave and it's going to be very clear to you what his will is, what he sent forth his word to do, what he sent me forth to do and what it means for it to be in you as it is in heaven. And so when you think about God's desire for it to be in you as it is in heaven, what that means is, man, there's a sinless life in heaven. And when I say sinless, I ain't talking about behavior, right? That's such an elementary poverty stricken understanding of what it means to have a sinless life. There's a life in heaven that ain't got no spots and blemishes. Mm -hmm. There's a life in heaven that ain't no decay. And, corruptness. and it ain't like there's no decay and corruptness because it's been hidden away where it never has to encounter any decay or corruptness. Right. It ain't a life that's got no spot and blemishes because it did everything right and avoided the spots and the right. blemishes. Or it avoided what could bring spots and blemishes. It has no spots and blemishes because it let all the spots and blemishes oh, come yeah. upon it and then it cleansed the spots oh, and blemishes. Oh, yeah. Right? It has no decay. It has no corruption because it let all the corruption there was in the universe come upon it and then it consumed it in you as it is in heaven. Right? That's what he's talking about. We're under the administration of an incorruptible life. Jesus, God came with the ministry. We talk about how, what's your ministry? Tulsa, Jerusalem. Like Angelique said, Tulsa, Jerusalem. Everybody and their mother has a ministry. What's your ministry? Well, the only reason why we can even talk in terms of having a ministry is because God's got a ministry. And we're so busy with, what's your ministry? What's my ministry? My ministry is this. Well, how many people are part of your ministry? Well, man, God's ministry is a ministry of life. And he comes to minister an indestructible life. He comes to minister to us a life that is without spots and blemishes, that no spots and blemishes can come upon. Right. He come to give us that life. That's bringing forth heaven in us. That's what it means for it to be in us as it is in heaven. And what John would come and say is, as Jesus is now, so are we in this world. Well, how is Jesus now? He's got a sinless life. He's got a sinless life. It says, who, he who has the Son is without sin. That's right. What does that mean? We got a sinless life. I don't think we understand what it means to have a sinless life. It means we got a life that's got no spots and blemishes, and it's the kind of life that the spots and blemishes can't come upon it. We got the kind of life where we ain't got to avoid the spots and the blemishes. We got the kind of life where we ain't trying to navigate everything in in such a way that no spots and blemishes will come upon us. We got the kind of life that doesn't bow down or cower away from corruption and decay because we got a kind of life that purges corruption and decay. That's what it means to have a sinless life. Jesus has got a sinless life. We see what his life does when it encounters corruption, don't we? We see what his life does when it encounters spots and blemishes. We see what his life does when it encounters decay. We see what his life does when it encounters death. Don't we? Don't we see what his life does? He came to minister that life to us. That's the sinless life as he is now. The life he has now is the life we have here, right? That's in you as it is in heaven. That's what it means. What did Paul say? He said, set your affection on high, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. What's he talking about? you got a sinless life, right? Heaven and earth have collided in us. Heaven and earth have collided in you. And that's really what Jesus is busy with in the Sermon on the Mount. I know we've corrupted these things, and I get into preaching the Sermon on the Mount, and people look at me sideways, because i got so many years of bad understanding about what's being said there. Well, I don't care. I'll just keep preaching it, right? But you know what Jesus is doing? He's calling forth heaven in those people. He's preaching a word that will call forth heaven in those people. He is declaring something that will cause heaven and earth to collide inside of those people. He's calling forth the kingdom of God inside of those people when he's preaching the Sermon on the Mount. He's bringing down heaven into that place when he's preaching the Sermon on the Mount. That's what he's busy with. That's what he's doing. And then we read it, and we read about all the things we think we're going to (laughs) do. And we completely miss the whole context. right? I'm just going to read it. And seeing the multitudes, Jesus went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them saying. I love the chosen. We were talking about this before. Um, I understand what they're trying to do, so I'm not trying to be critical. But I just want you to know, Jesus was not off rehearsing the Sermon on the Mount. He was not asking Matthew what Matthew thought he should say or whether or not this was good. Yeah. <laughs> I still love the chosen. I understand what they're trying to do. They want you to understand the humanity of people, right? And that these were just normal people. Because sometimes we could get this thought in our head that the apostles were not normal people, right? That they weren't like normal like us, yeah. right? And that Jesus didn't have any humanity. And they want you to be able to connect because I, I so I get that. But Jesus was not off rehearsing what he was going to say. He wasn't off asking people what they thought about what he was going to say, right? He wasn't thinking of their opinion. Do you know why? Because what did he say? I am from above and you are from below, right? And he was busy about to declare what was above so that it could be manifested in the earth. And he was declaring about how heaven could be born inside of a human being inside of human flesh. He was now going to declare how the Father brings forth heaven in human beings. He was now going to declare the Father's strength to produce heaven in human beings. He was busy there talking about the strength and the righteousness of God to produce a sinless life in people. That's what he was talking about. And that's what he was ministering to people. He was ministering life to people, a sinless life, right? The life that was from above. Here he is. He is the life that was from above. There he is. I'll just jump to this one right now real quick. We all think blessed in the pure in heart is blessed are those that never have a bad thought. <laughs> blessed are those who have never considered to do a sin. Blessed are those who only ever think about doing the right thing. That's what we call, you notice how the onus is on us and it's talking about us. Do you know what the pure in heart are? The pure in heart are those whose hearts have had the image of God cleansed. The pure in heart are those whose God's image has been sanctified in their heart. Ezekiel talked about God giving us a new heart. And he talked about sprinkling our hearts with water. And he talked about God sanctifying his name. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those who have seen God's image cleansed from the defilement of the sin and death that's in the earth. And the sin and death was blaspheming the name of God in the earth. The pure in heart are those whose it, the image of God has been cleansed, yeah. sanctified. It's no longer defiled. That's the pure in heart. And Why do you think it goes on to, they shall see God?
1: Yeah. Do you know what we
0: all see? Yeah. We see God. Why do we see God? Because His image has been cleansed, right? His image was defiled in our sight by the sin and death in the world, and He cleansed His image. Right Through the washing of the word, through the preaching of the word, he cleansed his image. We are the pure in heart because his image has been cleansed. We no longer got a marred image of God in our heart. God ain't a caricature, right? He's not all marred and mangled in our hearts. We're not busy looking at a God that we think has some darkness and some light. We're busy looking at a God that we see there's no darkness in him. There's no shadow of turning in him, that there's only good and perfect gifts in him. We're busy with the God that we know can, can't do harm to anyone. We're busy with the God that we know can only serve with life. He can never serve us with death. That's the God we're busy with, that there's only blessing and life in his hand, that there's no cursing and death in this God that we're busy with. He's innocent. As Bertie would say, he has an inability to do harm. We're busy with the God that we see as the good Samaritan and not the thief, right? And his image has been purified in our hearts because where we thought he was the thief stealing and killing from us, where we thought he was the thief that was condemning us, where we thought he was the thief that was accusing us and pointing at our our nakedness and uncovering our nakedness, what we see now is that he was never the thief. That he was always the good Samaritan. That there he was with us when we were beaten and bloodied and left for dead on the road by the serpent. There he was to pick us up and fill us with the wine of his life. We're the pure in heart right? That's what it means to be the pure in heart. You see God and you see God in the face of the man, Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be the pure in heart, right? You behold the perfection of the father in the man, Jesus Christ. And it isn't just that this guy can't do you harm. It's that if you do harm to this guy, he won't return the harm you do to him with harm towards you. You can do all the evil you want towards this guy, and he will return the evil you do towards him with good. We're the pure in heart, right? <laughs> blessed, I mean, what, it blessed? what does it mean to be blessed? I'm blessed, brother. I'm blessed, don't you know? I mean, that became like a word that used every other sentence. I mean, when we grew up on the streets, the F word was the word we used every other sentence. Forgive my language. I won't use that word. But like every other word out of our mouth was that. But now you, like, you, know, you, you get delivered from your, your heathenism, right? But every other word then becomes the B word, blessed. How are you blessed? Blessed. I'm blessed coming in. I'm blessed going out. I'm bl- blessed, blessed, blessed. Well, and then, and then one poor brother is, uh, uh, is honest enough. You know, there's no guile in them. Oh, I'm not doing so good. Brother, don't say that. <laughs> Every other word is blessed. Yeah. Blessed meaning you are happy. Yeah. Blessed means you are happy for a very specific reason, yeah. on account of having inherited the kingdom of God. Yeah. That's what it means, right? And those so all those things are interconnected. All those blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the mourn. blessed are the meek, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the pure in heart, All blessed are the, the merciful. All those are deeply intertwined. And the result of all those are just a different way of saying who inherit the kingdom of God, who inherit God himself, who see God in the face. We see God in the face. We're no longer wondering who God looks like. We're no longer wondering what this God is about. We know what this God's about. We know who He is. We are intimately acquainted with Him. And we see that He is intimately acquainted with us. That He does not despise us when we are suffering. He does not despise us when He finds us dead in our sin. He does not despise us when He finds us in blood. He is not ashamed to call us. He's not wondering, why are they doing that? He's not sitting around thinking, well, they just don't want it. Look where they're at again. He understands how we could find ourselves in that place. He understands the effect that death could have on our lives. He came into the earth in the likeness of sinful flesh and tasted that same death, and he knows I'm the only one that can resist death in the flesh. Me. And so he's filled with compassion for you. Blessed are those. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are those who see God's filled with compassion. Blessed are those who see God prefers mercy instead of judgment. Blessed are those who know that when God comes upon a person that's in their sin, that's afflicted with sin, blessed are those who see God does not desire to judge them. He desires to heal them. That in his heart he has a strong desire to heal them and comfort them when he finds them there. What did he do when he found the woman caught in the act of adultery? See how he desired mercy and not judgment? Do you see how the Pharisees were of their father the devil and they were desiring judgment and not mercy? Well, Jesus blessed are the merciful. Jesus saw the father prefers mercy over judgment. And he saw that the mercy of God is that God is filled with a tender love in his heart, a tenderness in his heart, a deep welling up compassion that you can't hold back when you find somebody suffering. And the reason why you feel that deep compassion when you find them suffering is because you're intimately acquainted with the hurt they're experiencing, which means you felt it yourself. You ain't from a distance. And because you know so much about that hurt, here you come swooping in to heal them, to comfort them, to alleviate their suffering. That's what Jesus did with the woman caught in the act of adultery. Jesus was stripped naked on the cross. Didn't they throw the woman down naked? Guys, you, you can do so many things with the woman caught in the act of adultery. But the whole account of the woman caught in the act of adultery manifested again at the cross. Except it was the Father now who was in the role of, Of Jesus, and Jesus entered into the woman caught in the act of adultery. In fact, Jesus entered into the wage that had come upon mankind because we were the ones who had committed adultery. The woman caught in the act of adultery is not just that woman. It was all of mankind. We had gone a-whoring after other gods, right? There was a way that we thought was right as the way unto life, and it was not. Every single one of us in this room, even though we see God clearly now, every single one of us have been in the place where we thought we knew the way that was unto life. But it was actually the way into destruction, wasn't it? Boy, Jesus entered into that. And it's a, a perfect example. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Who are the poor in spirit? You know, the poor in spirit are those who aren't lifted up in their hearts. And you know what it means to be lifted up in your heart? It means to think that you can be exalted by the good you can gather to yourself. It means to think that you can look at at the strength in your hand and you say, by the multitude of the good, I can gather to myself. I will build up such a mountain of goodness that I can stand on top of it and I will be exalted. Poor in spirit is the opposite of that. They see that in and of themselves... They can do nothing to clothe themselves with the life of God. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. They look at the strength of their hand and they think about what can this hand bring forth And in their heart, do you know what they say? This hand, God, can only bring forth filthy rags. Like Paul says in Philippians, I was a a Hebrew of the Hebrews, circumcised the eighth day, of the tribe of Benjamin, right according to the righteousness pertaining to the works of the law, blameless. He's going into everything he could gain by the strength of his hand. And he says, I counted it all as dung. He became the poor in spirit. He said, I saw every good thing I could produce with my own strength. I saw the riches I gathered to myself being a Pharisee of the Pharisee. And he became poor in spirit because he looked at all of that and he said, it's dung, which means it's worthless. It's empty. It's vain. It is powerless. It's helpless to lift me up and exalt me unto life. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom. Right? was it say? Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And what will he do? Right, right, the poor in spirit. The publican in Luke 18, for people that like pictures, is a perfect picture of what it means to be poor in spirit. You have the Pharisee standing there telling God about all the good he produced with his own hand, thinking that everything he produced with his own works, with his own strength, was now the foundation from where he would be justified. And what does the publican say? Lord, I got nothing. I can't offer you anything, man. And you can almost see like the tears. I got nothing, man. I'm empty. Here I am, but I ain't got nothing. Right? That's the poor in spirit. I got nothing. This flesh cannot produce life. Right? That's the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are, are they that mourn. Listen, listen, I get all, I'm getting all teary-eyed thinking about being poor in spirit because it's like this strange kind of thing where you, you, you feel this helplessness and you, you, you want to cry, but it's also like this place of like blessedness, like great joy when you come to the place where you can even rejoice in your weakness, where you find yourself happy about your inability to gather life to yourself, where you find yourself happy that you have no strength in yourself to produce life. It's a cursed life carrying <laughs> the burden of producing life. And you find this tears coming down your face, and it's just mixed emotion but you're like hallelujah because carrying the burden of trying to keep my life from spots and blemishes it's killing me it's killing me blessed are they that mourn mourn is not just talking about crying and being upset it has a very specific connotation this is the gospel of matthew these are jewish dudes and I'm going to keep running down this. But there's a whole lot of Jewish slang going down in here. And mourn meant something very specific in the Jewish culture. It was not just a cry. Because what does it say? It says, blessed are, I think it says they'll find comfort. Yeah, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Listen, man, Esau cried day and night, it says. Yeah. Did he find comfort? No. In fact, it says the root of bitterness sprung up inside of him. Mm. And so he, he cried. It says day and night, but that wasn't the same as mourning. And so mourning is not just to cry and be upset. The scripture says that Esau found no place in his heart for repentance, though he cried day and night. So he cried day and night about not inheriting eternal life, about missing out on the blessing of the firstborn from the dead. He cried day and night about that, but he found no place in his heart to turn away from the morsel of meat. And so he wanted God to come and bless the morsel of meat. Give me the blessing of the firstborn through my own strength. Let me attain to the blessing of the firstborn through my own strength. So who are the mourn? Who, who are those that mourn? Those that mourn are those that when they feel afflicted, when affliction comes upon them, when affliction comes to their house, they turn away from looking to the strength in their own hand and they cry out to God that in the place of affliction, in the place of needing life, in the place of needing peace, in the place of needing love, needing joy. Those that mourn are those who turn away from thinking they can gain that from their own hand, and they look to the hand of the Father. That's those who mourn. Jesus mourned on the cross. He said, I thirst. He wasn't talking about give me some water. He wasn't talking about I'm cotton mouth. He hungered and thirsted after comfort. He thirsted after comfort. And what did he hunger? He looked to the righteousness of God. They gave him a sponge that had an elixir on it that could numb the pain. He spit it out. Why did he spit it out? Blessed are those who mourn. They shall find comfort. We know he found comfort. Go read Psalm 22. Mm -hmm. Because it gets about halfway down. And what is it? What does the dude turn into saying? Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me, he goes on to say in Psalm 23. Right around the middle of Psalm 22, what does he say? But he has not hid his face. He has not abhorred the affliction of the afflicted one. Neither is his face hid from him, but he hears him when he cries out to him. He mourned. Habba! And then he goes on to say, the Father is my shepherd, I do not lack. Peter would come and say that Jesus looked to the shepherd and bishop of his soul. And so Jesus was thirsting after comfort. And where did he look when he wanted comfort? God, blessed are those that mourn. They shall find comfort. Right? That song, Wouldn't it be like you to be different than we thought? Different than we want, but better. Listen, man. Mm, Makes me want to cry right now, thinking about all the years with God and what I wanted. And how I was so sure that what I wanted was what I needed. And how I even hated him for not giving me what I wanted because I knew it was what I needed. And I thank God that he loved me more than he loved himself. He loved my life more than he loved feeling good about himself for me liking him. Because everything that I thought that I needed, everything that I thought that I wanted was full of corruption. Vain glory. It had no ability to give me life. And he loved me enough to let me be angry with him yeah. and nail him to a tree every day yeah. until I finally saw. I still remember this. I still remember this day when I start getting it, man. And I have, and I'm not saying you can't get things from God. That's not the point that I'm making. But I found myself to the place where he was different than I thought, different than I wanted, and then I realized, but it's better and I find myself walking down the street, Lord, I don't want nothing but eternal life. I don't want nothing but peace and love and joy. I don't want nothing but that. Everything that I want is found in you because I became persuaded that really all I wanted was comfort. That if I actually felt comforted, I wouldn't want anything anymore. That everything I desired was from the place of not feeling comforted, and I thought, these things will comfort me if I can just get it. Right? But then God called forth heaven inside of me. Through the revelation of the man Jesus Christ. And what happened was heaven and earth collided in me and I began seeing the comfort I long for is in the hand of the Father. Blessed are those that mourn. And I began calling upon the name of the Father in the midst of my affliction. And every time I became afflicted, I began fellowshipping with the sufferings of Jesus when he was nailed to the tree. And what I mean by that is I began fellowshipping with the faith that was in his heart that the comfort I needed in my affliction was not found in this dying body or in this dying world, but it was found in Abba. And what happened was is I gave up the ghost. I mean, I, I grew up like rough and edgy, and you know, we, we enveloped ourselves in darkness. The theme of my life at one point, was like melancholy and the infinite sadness. It was like a badge. like, yeah, who can be more sad than me? <laughs> my depression is greater than your depression. Oh you think yours is bigger than mine? Uh. <laughs> now we' fighting in the street about who's more depressed? think i'm joking (laughs) but giving up the ghost man in our in that dark time when the movies we watch all the time when we were on drugs was and there's no kids in here so i'll just be honest when we were on drugs and i'm not exalting the drug usage but we were on drugs we would watch the exorcist all the time and all these dark movies and one of the scenes you know the demon and the girl throws up all this stuff and i realized what happened when god caused me to give up the ghost is like i threw up right the vainglory it was like i threw up the poison that was in me which was this lust for life from the world. And he brought something forth in me where I threw it up out of myself. And I I saw that it was worthless. And the grace for you to lay down the life in the world is not for you to be told to lay down the life in the world. The grace is for you to see that the life in the world is corruption. It's death. And one of the examples I use all the time in the men's Bible study and the Bible studies is another corrupted movie we would watch all the time, The Shining. Right? And Jack Nicholson goes into the hotel room. And when he goes into the hotel room, he sees a beautiful woman stand up out of the tub. Well, what do you think a young guy wants to do when he sees a beautiful woman stand up out of the tub without any clothes on? You know what he thinks? He thinks it looks good for food. Yeah. It looks shiny. It looks like a treasure, precious. <laughs> he said, everything I need is right there. And so Jack walks over to her, and he starts kissing her. Well, right as he's kissing her, She turns into a corpse right as he's kissing her. Worms and stuff. Do you think Jack needed to be told to get away from her? I'm telling you, a great grace came upon him to run away. I mean, my man stumbled backwards and fell out the door and couldn't stop running. The cross pulls back the veil on every beautiful thing you think you can gain from the world. Because the things in the world do look good for food. They look like they can comfort you. They look like they can give you peace and love and joy. The cross pulls back the veil and says all those things in the world that look good for food, here it is. You want this? How many of you want this? Well, when you see this is what it gives you, guess what you do? A grace comes upon you, and you're like out of there, stage left, exit stage left. You like George and Seinfeld when the fire alarm went off, and you knocking kids and children, mothers and children out of the way, trying to get out the door. When you actually when your eyes can be opened and the haze and the veil can be removed and you see what's really in the world and what the world can give you. Listen, man, you knocking women and children out the way to get away from what you were always lusting after the whole time. Oh man. Blessed are those that mourn. Blessed are the meek. They shall inherit the earth. Do you know who the meek are? Jesus said he was meek. He talked about his doctrine a few chapters later. He says, take my yoke upon you. Right? For I am meek, he says. Well, yoke just means doctrine. And so he says his doctrine is meek. And so when you think, what does it mean to be meek? Meek does not mean timid. Because there was no one more bold than Jesus. And so meek does not mean timid. In fact, what makes a person timid is for their mind to be filled with their own strength in their own ability. Jesus took no thought of his own strength. He took no thought of his own ability. He thought nothing of his own strength. He thought nothing of his own ability. And guess what? That filled him with the grace of God. It animated him with the grace of God. He was meek. He thought much of God's strength and God's ability, and he thought nothing of his own strength and his own ability, and ability manifested in him. That's the meek. That's the meek. When the rich young ruler calls Jesus good master, as if the things Jesus was doing by his own strength was by his own ability, what does Jesus say? Why call ye me good? There's one who's good, even God. Jesus said the commandment Jesus had was not to come and speak of himself. He came to speak of the Father. And so he came. I know you see beauty coming out of me. Let me tell you what is the Father. Right? I know you want to make me king. The Father's the King. The Father's the one. Jesus took no thought of his own ability. He was the meek. He didn't say learn from me. He said learn of me. What does that mean? There's a word in him that was going to be made flesh. And you want to behold that word. And that word will teach you the doctrine of Jesus. And the doctrine that Jesus taught in the earth, he's laying out in the Sermon on the Mount. That is his doctrine. Doesn't he say it's light and easy? In Matthew 11? Take my doctrine on you. It's light and it's easy. Right? Everything we re- How heavy did all this stuff, the pure in heart, is it hard to be pure in heart? What about mourn? Is it hard to mourn? What about poor in spirit? Is it hard to be poor in spirit? Blessed are those who do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Listen, man, that's not talking about blessed are those who hunger after good things to happen in the world. That's not talking about blessed are those who want to have the right laws in the government. That's not what it means to hunger and thirst after righteousness. It's not talking about blessed are those who hunger and thirst after morality. Yeah. That's not what it's talking about. That doesn't mean we can't see love. That doesn't mean we won't be filled with love or peace. When it says blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, he's talking about a very specific righteousness. He's talking about God's righteousness, God himself. If you keep reading in the Sermon on the Mount, you get to Matthew 6, and what does he say? Seek ye first the kingdom of God, in whose righteousness? God's righteousness. If you want the kingdom of God, seek God's righteousness to give it to you as a gift, which is the totality of everything he preaches in the first 13 uh, verses in Matthew 5. You want to inherit the kingdom? Seek God's righteousness to give it to you as a gift. The Father is perfect. The Father's strength is perfect. Seek His strength to give you the kingdom. For His strength can never fail. Right? That's the, hung- that's the, that's the righteousness you're seeking. That's what He's talking about. It's the equitable deed and character of God towards sinners, towards mankind. Seek the good deed that God, will perform to give you the kingdom as a gift, right? When they come and mess with Jesus about the Sabbath, right? I love how we always ask people, how readest thou, (laughs) right? How readest thou the law? Well, the Pharisees were busy hungering and thirsting after their own righteousness. And so they thought the Sabbath, they thought they were supposed to serve the Sabbath. And they thought the Sabbath was about the work they would do to now serve the Sabbath. Well, Jesus saw something completely different because he was hungering and thirsting after the Father's righteousness. So when Jesus saw the Sabbath, he saw that the Sabbath serves me. I don't serve the Sabbath. And he says, you know how the Sabbath serves me? It serves me with rest. And you know how it serves me with rest? Because the the Sabbath speaks of the Father's work. The Father doth work. He never stops. He never stops working. Listen, man, you got somebody covering your shift at work. Are you going in? No. (laughs) You ain't going in, are you? No. Because someone else is working. Even when I don't see it, he's working. Blessed are those who hunger. You see, it changes the way you read the scriptures. Because if you're hungry and thirsting after God's righteousness, you begin to see the work of God everywhere. Even in a thing like the Sabbath, even in grace for so long, my view of the Sabbath was still, I must rest, I must rest, I must rest. And even just recently, I was like, no, it's declaring that God does work. It even says that in Genesis. And so Jesus looked in the Sabbath and saw, well, my Father doth work. That's what the Sabbath is about. And I doth work also. Because if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. <laughs> Blessed are those who do hunger and thirst after God's righteousness. Jesus cried out on the cross when he thirsted. I mentioned it earlier. Who, who, what was he hunger? What was he thirsting? God's righteousness. I need comfort. Where can it, where's it going to come from? The Father doth work. I need peace. Where's it going to come from? The Father will serve me with peace. Right? Mm-hmm. That's hungering and thirsting. After righteousness. God's righteousness. Hunger and thirst after good behavior. Come on, man. Right? That's how we read those things. Listen, the Sermon on the Mount is the most grace-filled passages in all of the Bible. And I will, if people like friendly debates, I'm happy to friendly debate. This is the most grace-filled passage in the Bible, and they've been ripped out of the body of Christ, and butchered, and just neutered, and we, we, we've turned them into this thing where we think that Jesus is preaching the law on steroids. That's not what he's doing. He's unwinding the strength of the flesh. He is not pointing people to the strength of the flesh. The scripture says that God can't be tempted with evil, neither can he tempt anyone with evil. He can never be pointing people to the works of their own hands. Blessed are the peacemakers, they shall be called sons and daughters. Mm. Blessed are the peacemakers, they shall be called sons and daughters. The peacemakers, right? Who are the peacemakers? The peacemakers are those when they find people dead in sin. They find people with death that come upon them because of sin. They don't impute their sin to them. But do you know what comes born out of them? Comfort ye, comfort ye my people. Speak comfortably to my people. Tell them their warfare has been accomplished. The peacemakers are those that when they find people being afflicted by sin and death, they declare to them that God has come and taken vengeance on the death that is tormenting them. Your warfare has been accomplished. Even though sin was causing death to reign over you, the grace of God has superabounded over that sin that was causing death to reign over you, and you're now under the reign of an indestructible life. (laughs) Jesus was a peacemaker on the cross. He didn't impute the sin of the people to them when they were nailing him to a tree. They reviled him and they mocked him. And the centurion is sitting right there when they reviled him and mocked him. What does Jesus say? Father, forgive them. And what does the centurion say? Truly, he must be the son of God. There was Jesus making peace. He didn't return evil for evil. He blessed them when they cursed him. He didn't pick up the sword, right? He wielded a different kind of a sword, the sword of the spirit. That's the kind of sword the church is supposed to be wielding in the earth. But the church has taken on Peter before the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, where we've taken up the sword, the same kind of sword the world is taking up. And now we're trying to have like a Darth Vader, Obi-Wan Kenobi fight with the world, where we're trying to yield, you know, swords and fight like that, right? And we're trying to cut off the world's ear. That ain't what it means to be a peacemaker. We we talk about how we want righteousness to be born in the earth, but we're not busy wanting the righteousness of God to be born in the earth. We ain't busy wanting to lay down our life for the evil people. We're busy wanting to take their lives. We're not busy looking at them, seeing they're being tormented by the affliction of sin and death, and coming and speaking comfortably to them, and telling them that God has conquered this death that's tormenting you. I know, because it tormented me, and God has conquered the death that tormented me. Right? Right? And the warfare has been so accomplished in me. If it makes you feel better, take my life. Go ahead. <laughs> what are the peacemakers. Mm. You guys following that? You see, if you don't have a firm foundation of all that stuff, you ain't even got no business going on to the next verses. If you don't even understand what Jesus is doing there, how he's trying to call forth heaven inside of these people, that he goes on, show us how to pray. Which, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is busy seeing the Father does desire to bring forth heaven in these people. He does desire to bring forth a sinless life in these people. Let me teach them about how they can partake in the Father's sinless life. Let me teach them about the tender love in the Father's heart and the righteousness in the Father to do a work to take vengeance on the death that's tormenting them and to produce heaven inside of them. Let me tell them about that. And that will cause them to be poor in spirit. That will cause them to mourn. That will cause them to be merciful. That will cause their hearts to be pure. That will cause them to be peacemakers. That will cause them to hunger and thirst after God's righteousness. And then you know what will happen? Heaven and earth will collide in these fools. You know, people say that oh, Jesus is teaching the law on steroids. Well, I will agree that Jesus is teaching the law. But he's teaching a different interpretation of the law than these guys were thinking of. It's a completely different thing. Isaiah 2 says that a lawgiver will come out of Zion. That's Jesus. And there he was demonstrating the law. Moses prophesied in Deuteronomy, one will come after me and he will explain to you the doctrine in the law and the prophets. Hear ye him. He says, hearken unto that prophet.'" In the word of faith, we did this weird kind of thing where if anybody could tell the future, they must be the prophet, because Deuteronomy said so. I'll take you down to Pirate's Alley right now and show you a bunch of people that straight out reject Jesus that could tell you your future. Are we going to now call them the prophet? Mm -hmm. Moses was talking about a very specific prophet, and he was talking about the Lord Jesus. That's the prophet he was talking about. And when he goes into, you will know him because he will tell you, Jerusalem. Not everyone or anyone, not you and me. He will tell Jerusalem of things that will come to pass, and they will come to pass. And what does Jesus say later on in Matthew to Jerusalem about the temple? Yeah, not, one stone. not one stone. And he also prophesied, tear this temple down, and I'll rebuild it in three days. He wasn't trying to save those people from the destruction that was coming to Jerusalem. Even should they be saved from that destruction, they're still going to perish. They need eternal life. He was trying to prove to them he is that great prophet that Moses prophesied of. When Moses told them, one's coming after me, he's the one who understands the law and the prophets. He is rabbi. He is master. Hearken ye unto his teaching about the law and the prophets when he comes. And so Jesus was giving his doctrine about the law and the prophets. He's teaching what the law and the prophets mean when he goes into all the, blessed are those. That's what, where do you think he got that? The law and the prophets. That's what he's teaching all those guys. He's teaching them. The law and the prophets speaks of God's righteousness towards sinners, not your righteousness towards God. Even in our beloved grace circles, we're busy still saying that the law and the prophets was God telling us about how we had to perform for him. God does not have the poison of asps under his tongue. The venom is not under his mouth. So Jesus, man, he's revealing the law and the prophets, but he's revealing to the people. The the word and the law and the prophets talks about the good thing God will do towards them, not the good thing they can do for God. He read the law and the prophets, and he saw it was about the work the Father would do to raise mankind out of the miry clay. And he was there to declare the faithfulness and the righteousness of God to raise us up out of the miry clay. Go and read Psalm 40. Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me, O God. I will stand in the great congregation, and I will declare your righteousness. I will declare your salvation and your faithfulness to raise these people up out of the miry clay. That's what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. That's what he's doing there. That's why if you keep reading in Matthew verse 17, what does Jesus say? We, We get to these verses, and we completely forget the whole context. Jesus is explaining the law and the prophets. Well, guess what? None of those guys had ever heard that interpretation of the law and the prophets. Not a single one of them had ever heard that taught. You can get to Matthew 7 and it says that they marveled at his teaching or his doctrine concerning the law and the prophets because he taught as one having authority. That meant something to Jewish people. That wasn't just like some random thing where we think, yeah, man, he knew the scriptures and they did. not This is what we used to say. He knew the scriptures and they didn't know how he knew them because he didn't have access to the scrolls. That's what we would say because we're Gentiles and we don't understand what that means. Do you know what it means to teach with authority? Only certain people could teach an interpretation from the scriptures that no one had ever heard before. Not everybody could do that. Scribes. Scribes had no authority to come with an interpretation that nobody had ever heard before. They were scribes. What is a scribe? They copy down something that's already there, isn't it? A scribe could only regurgitate something that a rabbi had taught. And the Jewish people had a word for someone who had authority to bring a new interpretation of the scriptures. That's what they're talking about. They called it shemika. And so the people marveled because Jesus came with an interpretation they'd never heard before. And they wondered, where did he get this authority to come with this interpretation? And so now Jesus hits them with something they've never heard about the law and the prophets. He knows what's coming next. You're destroying the law. That's why Jesus comes with verse 17. Think not that I come to destroy the law and the prophets. I did not come to destroy. I come to fulfill. Now listen, man, that's not what we think it means as Gentiles. That was Jewish slang. It was an idiom. The Pharisees used that language when they would argue about doctrine. And if one Pharisee came with an interpretation of the law and the other ones disagreed with it and thought it was wrong, they would stand up and say, you're destroying the law. And then the guy would respond by saying, think not that I'm destroying the law. I'm fulfilling. And he was not saying, I'm performing it. What he was saying is, I'm bringing the correct interpretation of the law out in the open for you to see it. So Jesus just came with something they'd never heard about the law and the prophets. He knows what the Pharisees are already thinking. You're destroying the law. He's already engaged in the, think not that I'm destroying the law, but I'm fulfilling. Jesus didn't fulfill the law by performing the works of the law. He fulfilled the law by bringing to realization the word that was always contained there. That's why John said, the word was made flesh. What word? The logic. Do you know what Deuteronomy is called? The logic of the law. Go look in the Hebrew. It's called the logic of the law. It's called the word contained in the law. That's what Deuteronomy means. And John would later come and call Jesus. The word was made flesh. The logic, the logos. And so Jesus was saying, I'm actually explaining to you guys the word that was always in the law. Because the law never spoke about the work that you would do. The law spoke about the father doth work. And you're going to come and tell me I'm destroying the law now, that I'm coming with an interpretation that's heresy, but I'm here to tell you that that is what the law talks about, the work of the Father. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Are you guys all right? We can keep going? Matthew 5, verse 17 through 20. Think. Not that I am come to destroy the law of the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no way pass from the law till all be fulfilled. He's not talking about carnal commandments when he says, not one jot or one tittle will pass away from the law till all be fulfilled. He just interpreted the law in the first part of Matthew 5. He's saying not one jot or tittle of what I just said will pass away till all be fulfilled. Not one jot or tittle of what he said is going to pass away till you and me are looking at each other in glorified bodies and we're like, dang, I thought you looked pretty good before, but check you out, man. I already put in a petition to the Lord, I don't want my hair back. I just want to be glorified, bald man. (laughs) You understand what I'm saying? Uh, Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, and so Jesus is comparing the strength in a man's hand to gather the kingdom to himself to the strength in God's hand to give the kingdom as a gift, right? So he's saying the the Pharisees are reading the law and they call themselves teachers of the law. He even said to uh, was it no not Zacchaeus is it no who Nicodemus, are thou a teacher of Israel, and knowest not these things? So they were reading the law, and they couldn't see that it was about God pouring out His life from heaven, and that you must be born from above, which means the life you have must come from above, or you're going to perish. Are thou a teacher of Israel, and knowest not thou these things? So the Pharisees read the law, and they thought the law spoke of the works that they would do and the strength of their hand to do the works to gather the kingdom to themselves. And Jesus was comparing that with the strength in God's hand to serve people with the kingdom. That's what he's comparing. He's comparing the Pharisees' interpretation of the law with his interpretation of the law. He's comparing their doctrine with his doctrine, right? All those verses where he talks about great in, greatest is in the kingdom, least in the kingdom, he's not talking about everyday Joes. He ain't talking about you and me. Greatest in the kingdom and least in the kingdom is slang again. And it was what they would use when the teachers were talking amongst themselves. And the greatest in the kingdom would be the one who is coming with the true interpretation. And the least in the kingdom is the one whose interpretation is heresy. And the whole point was the greatest in the kingdom is the one you call rabbi. And the least in the kingdom is the one whose doctrine you forsake and turn your back on. So he's talking strictly teachers of the law. He ain't talking about you and me. Or the people sitting there. He's putting him next to the Pharisees. And he's saying, Who's rabbi? Which one's rabbi? You say, but I say. (laughs) Which one actually has the words of life? Which one is actually interpreting the kingdom correctly? And he's giving them a blueprint by which they could discern it. By which they can know which one is rabbi. He says the one that you know as rabbi will teach what I just taught and they'll do it they'll demonstrate it the least in the kingdom those who aren't rabbi won't teach these things and they won't do it I mean the pharisees were hypocrites not only did they not teach the real way to enter into the kingdom they taught the false way but they didn't even keep the false way that they taught they were hypocrites And so Jesus is comparing his his doctrine and what he read in the law and how it spoke of the Father's righteousness. That's why he goes on to say, be ye perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. He's pointing them to the righteousness of the Father. He's describing the perfection of the Father. That's what he's talking about. We read, Be thou perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect, and we default into this thing as if the perfection for us looks like us performing the works of the Father. But you ain't the Father. So perfection for you does not look the same way as perfection looks for the Father. And so the way that we're perfect is not by performing the same works that the Father performs, because we're not the Father. He's the Father. The way we're perfect looks completely different than the way the Father would look perfect. And if you go and read in Genesis chapter 17, you see the word perfect being talked about. And what does God say to Abraham? Be thou perfect, walk before me. Walk before me and be thou perfect. Be ye perfect, even as the heaven, your heavenly Father is perfect. And so what is he saying there? He's saying when you see the perfection of the Heavenly Father, when you see the goodness in this guy's heart towards you to gift you the kingdom, when you see that this guy possesses no ability to do harm to you, when your heart's been purified, when you see that even should you bring evil to this guy, even should you come and nail this guy to a tree, even should you smack him across the cheek, he'll turn the other cheek, even should you put a crown of thorns on his head, he will return good for that evil. Even should you curse him, he will bless you. Even should you despitefully use him, he will pray for you. Even should you strip the father naked, He will go and get the cloak of his life and clothe you in that. Doesn't it say that they cast lots for Jesus' garments? And what did Jesus go to get for us after we cast lots for his garments? The cloak of his life. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. And so what's perfection look like for us? Just like it did for Abraham. What did God say to Abraham? Let's just read it. Speaking of being perfect, it says, And then when Abram was 90 years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. So perfection is found in walking before God. What does it mean to walk before God? What does it Paul say about Abraham? He considered not the deadness in his body or the deadness in Sarah's womb, but he glorified God. He saw that it wouldn't be by his own strength that he would be the father of many nations. It wouldn't be by his own strength that he would be exceedingly fruitful, but that it would be by the God that would provide himself as the lamb. It would be by the God that can even raise the dead. That's how Abraham was perfect. He called upon the name of the Lord. Jesus as the son of man was perfect on the cross. How was he perfect? Abba, into your hands I commit my life. And so the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus is talking about turn the other cheek, When he's talking about pray for those who despitefully use you, when he's talking about bless those who curse you, when he's talking about love your enemies, he's describing the perfection of the Father. And the reason why he's describing the perfection of the Father is so we walk before the Father and then we will be perfect. What does perfect mean? It means for you to be put to rest by seeing the equitable deed and character of God towards you. That's what it means. That's what Jesus is teaching. We were created to walk in the good work of God. Yeah. When was Adam made? Before or after God did all the work? After. And what was the one thing Adam needed to do, or Adam had left to do? Walk in the good work of God. Isn't that what it means to enter into God's rest? Yeah. I mean, isn't that how rest comes? You behold the work of God, and then you put to rest? And so we were always created to walk in the good work of God. That be thou perfect means walk in the Father's perfection towards you. Walk in the knowledge that even should you nail the Father to the tree, He will embrace you with love. Walk in the perfection of the Father that even if you smack Him in the face, He'll give you the other cheek. Walk in the perfection of the Father that even if you strip the Father naked, He is so much for your life, He will go and get you His cloak. Mm. we were created to behold the Father's perfection towards us and Jesus is describing it. He and he's teaching it from the law and the prophets. We just touched on whosoever shall break one of these least commandments and teach teach men to break them. Do you know who is teaching men to break the least of these commandments? Again, we get to the part where it says whosoever shall break one of these least commandments and we jump back To the Ten Commandments. What least commandments is he talking about? Guys, we do not pay attention to our exegesis. He just gave us all of the commandments when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those that mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart. Those are the least commandments. That's what he's talking about. Whosoever teaches men to break those. Who was teaching men to break those? The Pharisees. They were teaching you to be lifted up in your heart, not poor in spirit. They were teaching you that the father was the thief. What did they say when they took the woman caught in the act of adultery and threw her down at the feet? Moses says such should be stoned. God says she should be stoned. Because Moses was a prophet representing God. They weren't the pure in heart. They weren't the peacemakers. When they found the woman caught in the act of adultery, they didn't come and stand next to her as her advocate and tell her and speak comfortably to her and tell her that God is with you to justify you. God is with you to clothe upon you with his life. They didn't tell her that. They weren't peacemakers. They imputed her sin to her. So they were looking. They taught the people to break the least of the commandments. They didn't teach those. Not only did they not teach them, They taught people to break them, and they didn't do them. Jesus says, you'll know, rabbi. You'll know the one whose doctrine is true. You know the one whose doctrine has come from above that dropped like dew. You'll know the one who is rabbi because they will teach all those things. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after God's righteousness, and they will demonstrate it. And they will show you it is the way unto the kingdom. Now on the cross, Jesus was the poor in spirit. He, demonstrated. he looked at his flesh and he said, By the power contained in this dying flesh, I'm helpless to have life. I can't clothe upon myself. He was those that mourn. Because when he was afflicted on the cross, did he look to his own ability? Did he come down off that cross? Or did he commit his life into the hands of the Father? He was a peacemaker. He didn't impute the people's sin to them. He said, Father, forgive them. When they stripped him down, he wouldn't got the cloak. As the Father. Jesus was the pure in heart. Even when they were saying that the Father had forsaken him and that this had happened to him because God wasn't with them, God's image was not maligned in his heart. He saw that the Father did not abhor him. He saw the darkness of this cross hadn't come from the Father's hand. He saw the Father's face was shining upon him. He saw the Father will heal me. The Father's name was sanctified in his heart. He hungered and thirsted after God's ability to give him the kingdom instead of looking to his own strength to gather the kingdom to himself. He taught all those commandments and he showed them. He demonstrated them. And he didn't just demonstrate them and do them, but he came out of the grave showing them that what I said to you produces the kingdom of God. Because I came to teach you about how heaven could be called forth inside of you. I taught you the way the Father calls forth heaven inside of people. I taught you how the Father calls forth light out of the midst of darkness. And then I demonstrated it because I came out of the grave with the kingdom of heaven having been manifested in my body. Heaven and earth collided in the man Jesus when he came out of the grave. He's the greatest in the kingdom. That's why we know he's rabbi. I hate to break it to everybody, and I really don't. As a group of people, as humans that love each other, listen, it's very nice for us to sit around and talk about our opinions. And I want to hear from you guys because you have the Holy Spirit. But I promise you, when push comes to shove, all of our opinions are dung. There's one rabbi. I don't care if you think I know something. I don't know nothing. I ain't rabbi. I'm a scribe. We're all scribes. There's one rabbi. There's one master, Jesus said, and it's him. He taught those commandments, he showed them, and then he came out of the grave with heaven having been called forth inside of him. He was telling us the way it would be in us as it is in heaven, and then he came out of the grave having inherited heaven inside of himself. Now, that's how we know he's rabbi. When I was in Colorado and I would go to that Buddhist temple and debate with the Buddhist monks all the time, and we would talk all the time. It was a friendly thing. There was no hatred. Like, they enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. I don't get upset. I like a good, you know, wrestling. I like a good wrestling. Well, we, we did this for several months. And finally, I told him. I said, no, 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 because they, they didn't get it. I said, you don't understand. I said, I'm after glorified immortal flesh. I'm after a body that can't die. And I said, I only see one guy who talked about that and then came out of a grave having inherited it. I said, so you want to show me another guy that did that? Then I'll consider what they teach. But I gotta tell you, your 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 doctrine about how I'll float off into the, the air and become a spirit. I said, that doesn't help this flesh here. I said, because I'm not a spirit. I got part of me that's a body. And my flesh, when it hears you say that, it gets angry and it becomes fearful. And it wants to know, what about me? Yeah. I said, so you're Buddhist, man. I listen, I'm sure Buddha was a nice guy, but Buddha did not come out of the grave. And neither did what he teach cause a person to have their bodies glorified with immortality. There's one rabbi. That's why we call him rabbi. Because he taught that the commandment speaks of the work of the father and that the father will carve forth heaven in us. And then he did what he taught. And then he showed us heaven having collided in his body. That's why we call him rabbi. That's why he's greatest. Which just means he's master. And not master like we think of master. Master means he's he's actually the only one with the authority to interpret the scriptures. The reason the church is in so much disarray is because we all want to come with our own interpretation. Because we all think we're rabbi. Peter come and said the scriptures are not available for a private interpretation. There's one who has shmikah. That's what greatest means. There's one who taught what the law said, showed it, and proved it. It's Jesus. And Peter come and said, the scriptures are not open for your own private interpretation. We have a more sure word of prophecy now. His name is Jesus. Yeah, exactly. No, but were you guys able to follow that? that's the sermon on the mount it, you, you, you could start with this picture right that's why I wanted to play that song be it unto me according to your word when Jesus prays on earth as it is in heaven and that gal she starts tearing into that and I promise you it's by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that she start doing that on earth as it is in heaven well Jesus knew that the Father's will was for it to be in earth as it is in heaven He knew that the Father's will. He knew that the law and the prophets spoke of the Father desiring to call forth heaven in us. And He came teaching the word of the Father because that's how the Father calls forth life. He doesn't tell you to produce life. He doesn't tell you you should do life. He declares a word that will produce life in you. That's what Jesus was doing in the Sermon on the Mount. He was declaring the perfection of the Father because when you could see the perfection of the Father, you'll become poor in spirit. You'll mourn. Yes. You'll be meek. Yes. You'll, you'll have a pure heart. You'll be a peace peacemaker. You'll be the merciful. And heaven will come pouring forth out of you. And you'll be walking around in the earth as it is in heaven. Mm-hmm. You can walk around in the earth now as it is in heaven. And I'm not talking about you, you. you can glorify your body right now. What I mean is you can walk around in the earth having been persuaded that you possess a sinless life. And that will remove timidid, timidity from you. And you'll be filled with a meekness, but a boldness. Because your mind isn't thinking of your strength or your ability or the strength that's in the world. But your mind is filled with the strength contained in God's life. And you'll walk around with the mind filled with the strength contained in God's life. Right? On earth as it is in heaven. Right? what it is. God coming down out of a whirlwind. Like with Job. And I'm not saying you're like Job. But I realize that's how the gospel is. is We have our own conclusions, right? And we think we know God, but really so much of what we know about God, we heard from somebody else. And the gospel is God coming down out of a whirlwind, questioning our answers. Who told you, right? Who is it that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge, right? Who is it that man is maligning my image in the earth with their surmisings? Right. Mm. The gospel will do that. I've had so many of those whirlwind moments with God where you're like, man, I really did believe that, didn't I? That's tough. That's tough, bro. And then God's like, you mad, bro? (laughs) You mad, bro? Because I told you. (laughs) I'm like, no, I'm not, man. I can take it. Right. You start to love correction. Right. Because you see that the correction isn't out of the father's dissatisfaction. It's out of Him loving your life, right? Yeah, Yeah. lay down the life that's in the world. That's what I want to say. It's impossible with man to lay down the life that's in the world. The flesh has to find that. The flesh is yearning for something. And it has to find what it's yearning for satisfied in the glorified man, Jesus. And that's when you'll give up the ghost. Jesus knew that what He wanted, the world couldn't give it to Him. So why is He going to fight for it? No, even should I come down and claim every nation in this earth can't glorify this body, so it can't satisfy me. It's done. It's dung. The strength in the world is dung. The strength of the world. That means whatever it is you think in the world can satisfy you, it's impotent. It can't satisfy you. That doesn't mean you can't enjoy things, but don't confuse enjoy with satisfy. (laughs) Those are two different things. And if you're always looking at things to be satisfied instead of just enjoying what you have, even should you get the things that you think can satisfy you, you won't even enjoy them when you have them. And you'll even find yourself talking yourself out of enjoying the things you wanted when they came because you'll find some way to talk yourself out of it because it can't satisfy and you won't feel satisfied when you have it. And you think that means you don't really want it. No, what it means is that what you wanted never could satisfy you to begin with. And that's why when it's there staring in your face, you don't want it. <laughs> Uh, man, I've lived that. I've lived it. Um, man, I, I still I remember, man. Am I enough, Greg? Uh. <laughs> Be, because when he said that to me, and listen, I've been a, a Christian since I was a little boy, and you think you're after God. Mm-hmm. And you think you are, right? And when he says that, you realize, you know what? No, you're not. And that's where I'm at. <laughs> I, 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 yeah. My mind says, yes, you are enough. I agree with that saying. But you just revealed to me in that moment yeah. that my heart does yeah. not think you're enough. Yeah. For anybody that might watch this later, there's no shame. You, you need to come to the place where you let your heart be laid bare. Yeah. You're not enough, God. Yeah. That's where I'm at. God's not ashamed if that's where you're at. For anybody watching this, he was not ashamed of me. He knew. He already knew it was there. He didn't need to ask questions. He was trying to bring it to the surface so it could be dealt with. And he did deal with it. Right? And he taught me that he was enough. He did. He's faithful. And he showed me how he was enough. And he wasn't intimidated. Listen, I'm not the kind of person who just believes what people tell me. And I can become an ornery person. I, I know something I think I know something and so God come questioning my answers I got a whole lot of responses right you, you think you can play I mean I wrestled with him you know if, if you find yourself if you're watching you find yourself struggling that's you might consider that is God you might hear the voice of God asking you am I enough and and then you might just be honest because that honesty that unconcealed heart is like inviting the Father into the situation. Let Jesus come into the situation.